Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I've found there's two kinds of people in the world, and I'm sorry if this is, you know, boxing you or stereotyping you too much, but there are people who love this shirt and people that think I should burn it. Um, I just wanted to get that out of the way so you weren't thinking about my shirt the whole time. Uh, And it's Father's Day. My wife falls into the latter half, and so uh, I get to wear it on Father's Day because I get to do what I want. So, yeah. Um, My name is Chad. I'm the pastor of this church, for those of you that don't know, and I've been the pastor of this church for like six years now, and uh, when you start in ministry, you, I think you have these, these great expectations, these high hopes on what will happen and what will take place, and uh, a mentor of mine said this, this incredible thing to me that really uh, tempered expectations and helped this church move forward at a slow but healthy pace, I think, and he said, uh, you will be amazed at how little has changed in one year and shocked at how much has changed in five. And I just kind of put that in my head and said, okay, we're not, this thing isn't going to be radically different overnight, but uh, I'll put myself on a five-year plan and I'll, I'll see what's happened. And, and through the years, God has, God has done awesome things. We've slowly grown. We slowly do more and more in our community uh, to the point where just recently, and if you've been around a long time, uh, this this will mean something to you. If you haven't, then it means nothing. But uh, for years at our church, people would just, whenever they heard I worked at Creekside, they would say, oh, you're the ones with the sign at the property. And just the other day, I had an interaction where somebody came up and said, oh, wow, you guys do so much in the community. And it was this giant shift. I hated being the church with the sign because uh, any church can have a sign. And, uh, and our church is uh, financially uh, in a much healthier place, and we are growing. may not be able to tell that as much this morning, but uh, we are uh, growing. In fact, we have added 13 different families uh, to our, our uh, church organization software since Easter, uh, just a few months ago. So there's 13 new groups in there. In the last year and a half, that's even more. Our church has really doubled in uh, regular attenders, not in attendance, but in people who, who make this their church and, and regularly attend. Uh, it's really awesome to see what is happening and while that's happening, and, and those who are, are in my innermost circle can probably tell you this, uh, as, as good things happen more and more, I feel more and more pressure to pastor this thing well. And it's easy when you're, when you're just 
just this kind of dying church to feel like you're doing a good job whenever you, uh, you know, you go through a Sunday and there's no mistake with the sound, right? You're like, hey, we, we made a step forward today, right? Or, or, or you, you get new wheels on something you bring in. You feel good, like we're making progress. But right now I'm looking at our church and the people that God has brought and, and just all of the things that he is doing. And I feel this intense pressure to lead it well because as I look around, the American church, especially, and I'm with people in our denomination, especially in our denomination, there are very few healthy churches. There are very few churches that are growing. There are lots of churches that, that are falling apart and closing their doors. I had an interaction at, uh, at, a, at a lunch with our denomination the other day, and I had no idea of what I'm about to tell you, but... Uh, they, they were talking about a, a church and, and how this church was struggling. I won't give you any more details than that. Uh, but uh, this church, and, and I was halfway paying attention because I was really hungry and I wanted to eat sushi. And, uh, but then it caught my attention that this is actually the church that planted our church some 25 years ago. And I think of them as, as a fairly large church. They have a fairly large building. They own... Uh, they own houses around their property. And, and I said, wait, are you talking about? And I don't know people at this church very well. I just know that they planted us. I've been to their church building a few times and I just think of them and, you know, it's kind of a model church in a lot of ways. And they said, yeah, they, they just, I mean, it's bad. Uh, and it's been bad for a long time. And they have about 75 people attending their church right now. And, and then that struck me, like, we have more people attending our church than the church that planted us. Like, and, and it, it says there's these good things happening, but, I, but we are unique in that most churches that have gone downhill never come back uphill. It just doesn't happen. And so I see God doing these things, and, and if you heard my sermon last week uh, about just the supernatural and its importance in church, I see God doing these things despite me, and I see his power at work in our midst, and I, I just, we have to get it Right? Not just for our sake, but for the sake of our community, for the sake of our, our, our cities, for the sake of our state. We have to get this right. And today we look at a passage of scripture that's so uh, different than last week's. And last week as we examined the first church, we talked about how in the modern American church, we've gone so far away from this first church, like the literal, the first Christian church. We've gone so far away from them because... Uh, we have kind of sucked the supernatural out of Christianity and we've made it this, when we talk about church planting or church revival or church in general, we think in terms of like a business plan, right? Like what's your marketing efforts and, you know, the name of a church becomes, you know, one of the most important things. And, uh, and when I said this last week, when I read church books, nobody ever talks about God or what God would want. It's just about what works and what steps you need to take and all those things. And, and today we, we go like, I mean, it was all about the supernatural last week, but today we look at this passage of scripture that is really about how the first church organized themselves. And so we see very, it's like a big dichotomy, but they totally were reliant on the supernatural power of God. It's undeniably clear. They had no good plan. 
And they trusted God, but then all of a sudden, in the passage we'll look at today, as the church continued to grow, it was essential that they had some type of organization, and we get to read about that organization in Acts 6. And what's so cool about it is that it's an organizational structure that was passed down into the other early churches and really exists in many today, albeit not quite as successfully. And so here's, here's what we read. Here's the setup in Acts 6.1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so we see the early church is, is growing like crazy, really. I mean, uh, I, I feel pressure. I mean, they went from you know, 125 to 3,125 in a day, and they just kept exploding from there. Can you imagine what was being put on the plate of those early disciples, those apostles that were leading that church? Can you imagine that? Uh, any organization growing that fast, they probably, I mean, that's why they prayed so much, because they're like, this, we don't have a clue what we're supposed to do. Uh, and so this church is growing, and, uh, and, and at the same time, you have these apostles who are kind of leading everything. But they had been given this very specific calling from the mouth of Jesus himself. When Jesus was about to go up into heaven, the end of Luke's gospel, beginning of Acts, he says to them, here's here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded and in a sermon that I've already given what did we see about them if you weren't here I'll fill you in what we saw about them is that they already were in charge of distributing the money that people were gaining from selling properties in order to give to the needy and so now all of a sudden just a little bit these apostles these guys who had hung out with Jesus they have this grand calling to make disciples of all the nations right baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit But now they have this other responsibility. And the responsibility is that they're distributing money to those in need. And when we come to our passage of scripture today, if you were paying attention, then you see that they had this other responsibility that they were supposed to oversee. And that is making sure that widows were getting the the daily distribution of food. Now, even at a church of a few thousand people, that, that in our kind of you know, our thinking today doesn't seem like a, a very, uh, you know, monumental task. But what was happening at the time was, was really vastly different than, than what we have in our, our culture today. And uh, that's in large part because of the amount of widows in the first century Roman world. Uh, some scholars, historical scholars, think that a third of the Roman world was widowed. I mean, that's a huge population of widows, right? And then uh, 40% of those uh, of people between 40 and 50 years of age were widowed. And in Roman culture, there was no social structure to help those, uh, those widows. Uh, there, was no, there was no help. There was no government resources. You were totally reliant on marrying again, if you were a woman specifically, marrying again, or you were reliant on your family to take care of you. And so you can imagine, you know, if you got 40% of people being widows, that, that a lot of people don't have families, and, and so they're, they're just 
they're starving, right? There's no, there's no outlet. There's no way for them to get what they need. At the same time, uh, the Jewish people did have some systems in place in order to help widows. God had, had put that into his law way back when. When we think of the Old Testament law, we think of things like don't lie, don't murder, but God had also spoken greatly about taking care of widows and orphans and foreigners. And, and so the Jewish people were trying to take care of widows, but they were struggling to keep up because it had become... Uh, because it had become so prevalent in their society. And, and even beyond that, really interesting thing, the story we're reading now takes place in Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem was, is like this holy place, and it was seen that way for a first century Jewish person. And so what would happen is that a lot of people would leave the surrounding areas where they lived their entire lives. This is called the diaspora, Jews who were spread out in the Roman world, not living in Jerusalem. And, and then at the end of their lives, a couple would say okay we've retired now in our vernacular and let's go die in Jerusalem because it's more pious it's more holy to do that and so you can imagine now in Jerusalem when you have a high population of widows anyway and now you have people literally coming back to your city to die and one spouse passes away and now especially with the woman you have a woman who's left there without their families because their families are far away in one of the other Roman cities and they're just there going what do we do now the resources are tapped out what's going to happen making it even more of a difficulty is that for some first century Christians once they gave their lives to Jesus and accepted his gift of salvation the Jewish people rejected them And say, wait a minute, you've left our religion. That's not the real Messiah. Look at what the religious leaders are saying. So they're not going to get help from the local synagogue, perhaps. They're not going to get help from their families. And so, at a church of several thousand people, just distributing food to the widows was becoming a fairly monumental task. And a task that those first apostles, the first leaders of the church, we're failing at and and we see it in our passage of scripture this this group called the Hellenistic Jews that's Jews who spoke Greek who probably had traveled from their cities and now were living in Jerusalem those Jews were being overlooked in the distribution of food there's an oversight there's a problem it's not getting done in the most effective way and right from the outset, we see this problem that, that is a problem in so many, especially small uh, American churches today, and that is this. When the leadership of a church is placed in charge of everything, uh, first, things will just never be that good. We've had wonderful people. It's one of the reasons that our church has been able to move forward and and grow. We've had wonderful people who have stepped up to get things done, to serve, but also to lead in our church as we've gone through the years. However, there's been very few people who have wanted to lead. And in a lot of ways, that's made me the lid of our organization. Like, we're only as good as Chad can be. I know that sounds vain, but I don't mean it as vain. I actually mean it as humble, if you can say that about yourself, right? I mean it in humility. Like, we can only progress as far as Chad's abilities, and that's not that far. Because when you have leadership leading many, many things, things can only be so good. 
At the same time, there's, there's this other problem, and it's not as uh, explicit in this first verse of our passage, but it's uh, implicit in the, the next few verses that we'll read, and that is that these apostles, and I said this, had this very specific task that Jesus had given them. And all of a sudden, they are unable to do the task that they have been called to do because they are doing so many other tasks. They're trying to lead this and this and this and probably things we don't read about in Scripture and this and this and this and this. They're trying to take care of everything in this church. And it's going to make it so that they can't, they can't focus on making disciples of all the nations. Proclaiming the gospel everywhere they go. That's their job. And I'm telling you, whether it's a church now in modern day America or whether that's early, the early church, it doesn't matter. When the leadership of a church is leading too many things, there will be oversights. Things will never be as good as they ought to be or they can be. And those leaders are never going to be able to live out their calling in the way that God has called them to live out their calling. And thankfully, these apostles led by the Holy Spirit, they recognize it. I think that one of the problems we have, one of the problems I fight against in myself, is this, this arrogance that says, well, I'll, I'll just do better. Right? I'll, I'll just take care of it and I'll do better. I got this under control. We've created, and, and you're to blame too, um, but we uh, collectively have created an American Christian culture where we look at a guy, be, in part because we're paying him, right? And we say, well, he's the pastor. He needs to take care of things. He'll take care of it. But it just doesn't work. And thankfully, these disciples, these apostles recognize this because this is what we read. They don't, they don't say, we got it. We'll work harder. We'll take care of it. We'll fix it. We got this under control. Instead, they, this is what we read. So the 12 gathered all the disciples, that's the entire church together, and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So what they say is our primary responsibility is the ministry of the word of God. That is to say our primary ministry is to proclaim the gospel to everybody. We need to tell people that they are sinners, that Jesus died for them, that Jesus got out of the grave and that they should follow Jesus. And to this point in the story, that's just really what they'd been focused on. It's part of the reason the church had, had exploded so quickly because they were given these grand sermons after people got healed and people were giving their lives to Jesus and joining the church. It was incredible. And now the organization has reached its lid and it's their ability to do everything. And so they, they conduct this plan. They, they say, hey, here's, here's, here's the deal. You guys choose seven people to oversee this ministry, to be in charge of this ministry, to run this ministry, to be the leaders over this, uh, the word, it's actually an interesting word, this business. And so all of a sudden they get very organizational, right? Like we have to organize this thing or else it's not going to work very well. And they say these things about these people. They say that they have to be qualified and 
the qualifications are worth noting here. They have to have a good reputation. It's very simple, right? Something that maybe we don't think about when we think about ministry leaders, people in charge of ministries, but they have to have a good reputation with other people. They have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a church, we believe that every person who becomes a Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that every person is filled, a word that the Bible used, or let me say it this way, that does not mean that every person is allowing for the Holy Spirit to dictate all that they do in their lives. And this early group of Christian leaders say, hey, we need, we need people to lead ministries. And their first, their primary thing is not to be people that are great business leaders. Their primary thing is that their lives show that they are allowing God's spirit to, to dictate what they do, to lead them, to guide them, to turn them into the people that God wants them to be. They should be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you think about them, you should think those people are always listening to God. They're always trying to do what God wants. And then it says they should be filled with wisdom. That is, that they should have the ability to make the right or good decision when decisions need to be made. Now, we often think of wisdom as as you know, this, this very practical thing, you know, the smart decision. We almost use it synonymously with smart. But biblically, wisdom is more about the right decision and not the smart decision. It's about the decision that God would want you to make, not the decision that the world says makes sense. And so we have this great criteria for, for ministry leaders. And, and it's, they have to have a good reputation. They need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they need to be people who are wise. Now this, this organizational structure was, was not something they just whipped up on their own. It actually probably is connected back to Numbers 11. You can go read it. But this guy named Moses had been uh, called by God to lead the Jewish people out of exile in uh, excuse me, yeah, out of exile in Egypt and where they were persecuted, where they were enslaved. He had led them out into the desert by God's powerful work. And as he gets out in the desert and he looks at these tens of thousands of people, he, he comes to a point where he just can't be in charge of everything. He's the lid, right, on how well this, this organization, this giant nation is going to be run. And, and so God says, hey, I need you to find 70 elders and put them in charge so that you and I think this word is so brilliant so that you can share the burden of these people of running this whole deal but the background of it is not nearly as important to us today as as what takes place after it and that is that the the church the entire church like from the very first ones until now it, it it takes on this organizational structure. Acts 6 is foundational for how the New Testament describes the leadership of a church. And basically, we see that this idea, this, this idea of a ministry leader uh, is transliterated in other New Testament books as deacon. Maybe you've heard that word before. It comes from this word ministry, which is like diakonos, and, and so you can hear deacon in that, right? And so this word for ministry transforms, morphs into this other word that really means ministry leader. 
And what's so fascinating about ministry leaders in the New Testament is, is that they, they, ministry leaders, are the ones who are, are in large part in charge of the work that happens in the churches that God begins this thing called Christianity with. One author said this, the biblical role of deacons is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that the elders, parenthetical pastors, can concentrate on their primary calling, which would be to spiritually lead people. That's what the word elder means. It's another word for shepherd, and the idea is like a shepherd of souls. And, and it's my job, it's my job as a pastor, it's our elders' jobs at this church to spiritually help you move in the right direction. I do that through teaching, I do that through leading, I do that through sitting with you at Starbucks, I do that through responding to the response cards that you put in the offering basket. I I try to spiritually lead you, but what's so fascinating is that the early church, based on this model in Acts 6, did not have as its organizational structure, as a pastor, you would do all of the spiritual leadership and you would do all of the day-to-day leadership but that's really different right than what you see in a normal church where the pastors are in charge of taking care of everything the biblical role of deacons is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church and the next two verses we read this this proposal pleased the whole group They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Perminus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert of Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The solution pleased the church. It's a solution that's supposed to be in place 2,000 years later, but there's a couple interesting things about these names because... I think we have it in our heads. I really do. That it's really important that we get the right pastors in place. But we find people to lead ministries that, that are willing, you know, and have a little extra time on their hands. But as you look at this list, we don't know a lot about most of the guys. But the two guys we know something about... These are not lightweights of the faith. These are not guys that just had enough time on their hands to take over the ministry roles. These are two of the most important figures to early Christianity. The first one, and maybe you know his name, is Stephen. He gets this special mention because he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit, which we assume all of them were full of faith in the Holy Spirit. But Luke, as he writes this letter, he says, look, Stephen, who was full of the faith and Holy Spirit, He becomes the first Christian martyr, the first one killed because he refused to reject Christianity. He refused to say, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Just after this, in the story that that almost directly follows this, uh, we see the story of Stephen being killed for his faith. And what's so incredible about it is that not only does Stephen die for the faith, because that would be like, you know, that's incredible. And God looks down and sees that in the most incredible way, like you're willing to give your life for me. Not only that, but Stephen, as he stands trial in front of the religious leaders, gives one of the greatest theological expositions of of like the entire scripture and how it points to Jesus that the world has ever known. He just goes all the way back and says, you want to know why Christianity? 
Christianity is true and why I won't give up on it? Let me tell you, religious leaders. And they don't like it at all, and then they stone him to death. But when we think about Stephen, we, we can't think like, oh, I guess he had enough time on his hands to take care of the waiting of tables. We have to think this is an incredible, incredible man of God who was willing to give everything, everything, because he loved Jesus so much and his faith was so strong. The other guy, and maybe this name will be familiar to you too, but for me, and I, this is almost embarrassing to admit, but I had never even connected like Stephen who died, who's like in the next story, so that's weird, to this Stephen in Acts you know, 1 through 7, and I especially had never connected this next guy, and that's Philip. Philip is this guy who has crazy stories about him later in the book of Acts, and Philip is, is one of the most incredible Christian missionaries that's ever lived. There's a crazy story about Philip and an Ethiopian guy and shows up, gets in the Ethiopian guy's chariot and leads him to Jesus and then vanishes to another city. It's a crazy story. But Philip is an incredible Christian missionary and he goes around the known world telling people about Jesus after the church is scattered in a story we will look at in this series later. And then 20 or so years later in Acts chapter 21, so later in this book called Acts, this same Philip is referred to as Philip the Evangelist. That's a, that, do you know what evangelism is? Like sharing the faith with people, telling people about Jesus? I mean, this is no lightweight of the faith. When I'm dead and gone, nobody's going to call me Chad the Evangelist. It's just not going to happen. This is a big deal. Nicholas, another guy in this, was not Jewish, which shows, and I love this, that, that already we see this this diversity in Christian leadership and it's so interesting because he was from Antioch and Antioch becomes one of the key first churches. It's kind of this model church for all of us to follow. In fact, uh, a guy that uh, the president of my seminary where I got my master's degree, he just wrote a book not that long ago on the church in Antioch and the principles we can learn from it. And that church becomes this very healthy church and we have to wonder if it's because, because of Nicholas when he's scattered, goes back there and helps them lead and become a strong and healthy church. And, and I say all this to say that when the New Testament talks about people who are in charge of, of the physical work that happens in a church, this is not some secondary idea like, wow, those pastors are incredible people, but you know, see who you can get to take care of children's ministry. I mean, that is not the picture that is painted. In fact, and this makes it even more true. This makes it even clearer to see. It doesn't make it more true. It's true anyway. This makes it even clearer to see. And that is when you look at the qualifications for an elder and the qualifications for a deacon in the New Testament, a pastor and a ministry leader, when you look at what God says, this needs to be in place about them, specifically in 1 Timothy in the book of Titus, which are letters written to pastors of churches. The qualifications are hardly different at all. They're hardly different at all. You got like uh, pastors need to be men. Deacons can be men or women. You have that, that um, uh, pastors cannot be new converts. Deacons can be. You can be a brand new Christian and still step into that role. And, and beyond those things like, oh, and deacons don't need to be able to teach. Pastors need to be able to teach. That's the other one. And beyond that, it's like 
if you're qualified to be a ministry leader, you're almost qualified to be a pastor. It's pretty strong standards, right? Because God knows how important it is that the organizational stuff is taken care of within a church, that the physical things are being done. He knows, I think God just, it's like, I mean, you could look at this church and be like, man, if you put Chad in charge of the spiritual stuff and the other stuff, you're all gonna fall apart. It's pretty much what I hear when I read this. It just isn't going to work. And if you think like not a big deal, just listen to Acts 6, verse 7, the end of this. So, it's the first word. So, because of this, connected to this, as a result of this, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that awesome? I mean, the number of disciples grows rapidly, something we all want. We want more and more people to become Christians. But not only does the amount of Christians grow, but also people that you'd never expect to give their lives to Jesus give their lives to Jesus. I just think about that. There's so many of you that have loved ones. You're Christians. You want these people to become Christians and you think that will never happen, you know? I mean, consider, they're a priest in a different religion. There's no way they're ever gonna become a Christian. Well, maybe, maybe, if churches everywhere had spiritual leaders called elders doing the spiritual leading and then organizational, physical leaders running ministries, maybe just maybe the people that we think it's absolutely impossible that they'll ever give their lives to Jesus would start to give their lives to Jesus. I can't help but think when I read this that one of the great problems in the American Christian culture where we are a success story because we're actually growing and because things are healthy and because we love each other and nobody seems to fight about anything important anyway. Uh, I mean, uh, like, Maybe the problem or one of the problems, I mean, we talked about one last week, we've talked about a bunch, but maybe one of the problems is that we've created this model of church where a handful of people do all of the work because that's what they're paid to do because everybody else is lazy, I don't know. But the early church knew that if it was going to move forward, it was going to take incredible ministry leaders. Now, how's that apply? Well, first of all, uh, recently one of the great developments at our church is that we've had wonderful, more wonderful, godly, spirit-filled people with great reputations step up and say, I'm gonna, I'll be a ministry leader. Uh, I need to take ownership of this area. I think God wants me to take ownership of, of this. You're bad at it anyway, Chad. They don't say that, but I think it's implied. <laughs> so, and it is true. I mean, I, let me just give you names of our ministry leaders at this church. Uh, Bryn and Brandon and Carrie and Tanya overseeing children's stuff. And 
Ashley overseeing prayer and RJ overseeing our property stuff and uh, Michael overseeing uh, groups that we're going to launch new groups in the fall and Matt overseeing some education stuff and, and this is an incredible team and, and so all of this I mean so far point number one ready point number one we are in a great position to see more and more people become disciples and for people that we never expect to accept Jesus to accept Jesus point number two I never preach like this if you've never been here before, but it's coming to my head this way. Point number two, we still have areas in our church that need somebody to take ownership of them. I'm still the ceiling in too many areas, and these things will never get better. And we need to be praying that God, and this has been a prayer for six years, God give us more leaders, God give us more leaders, God give us more leaders, and God has really answered that and started to answer it quicker in the last six months or so, but we still need more people to take ownership of things if we're going to be all that God wants us to be. And so I just encourage you to be praying that God would put the right ministry leaders in our midst or he'd grow people into being ministry leaders in our midst so that we can keep moving forward as a congregation. One of the questions that you might ask is, well, Chad, what are you going to do? We pay you, you know? I mean, that's like what, what trying to get out of here. Um, I will say that it's always been one of my goals as a pastor, even before I was a pastor, to pastor a church in such a way that I could leave and nobody would notice. And that has not been even close to true for most of my time here. Uh, there was a time where if Bryn and I were gone on a Sunday morning, it was bad. It was just terrible. And now I'm pretty sure we could be gone on a Sunday morning and nobody would really notice. I hope you would notice a little. Like, hey, where was Chad and Bren today? But nothing would go wrong and I love that. But there's still so much more work to do so that I can be out of here. I don't want to leave. I can't even get rid of my childhood toys. Change is not a big thing for me. I'm not in love with it. However, uh, however I would like to know that I'm pastored this church in a way that I could walk away and you guys would just keep moving forward. But beyond that, listen to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, notice this, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It is my job to equip people so that they can do the ministry. It isn't my job to do the ministry. Now, as I say that, I want you to know that it's not a cop-out at all because there's, there's tons of things that I actually love to do in a church. There are things that, that, that frankly, I feel like I'm sacrificing in order to be a, a pastor. I, one of the great things to ever happen to me in my life is that I got to serve in different ministry capacities, but I, I think of things, I, I like doing children's ministry. Uh, not with babies, hate that. But like, I love hanging out with kindergarten kids. That was one of that was my first ministry role in a church. I was a kindergarten Sunday school teacher, and I I liked it a lot. Uh, I was even kind of successful at it because uh, because I was one of the few males that did it. And uh, and there was this little boy named 
his name was River Prince Song, um, was his name, and he had some behavioral problems, and, uh, but he responded to me well, because I was a young man who could say, sit down and shut your mouth, uh, and it worked with that whole male influence thing that my dad talked about earlier, right? So they actually sent him back from the first grade class to be in my kindergarten class when he was a first grader. And I loved it. I loved being with the kindergarten kids. I, I have a huge heart to serve the hurting and the broken in, in our community. And, and for two years at this church, before I was the pastor, I ran a homeless ministry uh, with others in our church where we served breakfast at the rest area. And I, I miss that stuff. I do. It's not my job anymore, but I miss it. And I still want it to happen in our church. And so when you hear, I think it's so easy for you to hear, well, Chad's just trying to get out of everything. Some of that stuff I love. But it's my job to equip you to do the ministry that God has called you to. Now, here's the other part of that. The other part is this. In 1 Peter 4, 10, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Having ministry leaders is great. Love that. But if there's nobody to help them do the ministry, it all falls apart. Well, it doesn't even fall apart. It just doesn't get done. And one of the things that we've built this church around is calling every person who is a part of it to serve. We need you, we want you, for your sake, for our sake, and for the glory of God, to be serving God in a way that God has called you to serve God. We believe the Bible teaches clearly that every single one of you who are a Christian has been uniquely equipped to serve God in the context of a local church. This doesn't just mean your, your personality or your, your um, education or the things that you're naturally good at. It also means beyond that, that God has spiritually gifted you to do something for our church if you're part of this church. If you're not doing it, our church will never, no matter how many ministry leaders we have, our church will never be all that God has called it to be. And so you, this point number three, you, who are not a ministry leader, you need to see where God has called you to do something, and then you need to be willing to do it. I want to tell you, just again, let me mention a couple of ministries in my life, and I'm going to mention these here because, as I say, this is for us, and this is for God, and this is for you too. Serving in a local church changes everything. I wouldn't be half the person I am if at some point I wouldn't have just stepped up to lead, to do, not to lead even, just to do. If I wouldn't have stepped up to do things in my local church. And I've been given great opportunities. I, I, I mentioned the kindergarten Sunday school. That was a huge step in my progression. It was fulfilling. It was important. Right out of high school, because I had this good relationship with, with uh, the youth pastor of this church, he, he called me and said, I don't normally ask people to, to be a leader this early, but I, I think that you're called to be a pastor. I want you to help us with this youth ministry great ministry experience for me to be 18 years old I might have yeah I just turned 18 to be 18 years old and investing in people barely younger than me huge ministry experience for me uh my my first paid uh ministry gig was a uh was leading a retirement home bible study and uh and 
I wasn't great at that. I didn't spend nearly enough time preparing or anything like that. But this guy who was an incredible Sunday school teacher at my church, I didn't even know him because he had since gone to live in this facility and no longer went to our church. And I went to a very large church. Um, but, but this guy who, who all the Sunday school rooms were named after because he had taught Sunday school so faithfully for so long. I thought it was because he was rich until I went to his funeral. Like he had donated a bunch of money so they named everything after him. But it was because he had taught Sunday school so faithfully. He just, I mean, he said one thing to me about my teaching that, that forever impacted the way I teach. And uh, and I was so filled up by that, right? And, uh, and so all of these ministry experiences have been the joys of my life. Not because they were glamorous, not because anybody looked at me and said, hey, you are cooler for being in this position, but because, because they mattered to the people around me. They mattered to the people around me. And I want that for you. I... I I know you have a lot going on. I know you're busy. I know you can't think about adding something else. But you'll never feel as full spiritually as you want to if you're not actually serving. You can read the Bible all day, every day. You can pray all day, every day. But until you're serving, a part of your spiritual life is missing. It's missing. And so that leads me to point number four. Next week is Serve Sunday. And I want you to be here, and I want you to pray this week that, that, that God would do one of two things in you. One, if you're serving, and, and so many of you are, and pff, you're, you're, you're incredible. Um, I can't imagine where we'd be without some of you who have served for six years and, and just done so much. Uh, but if you're already serving... Just ask God this week, like, God, am I serving in the way you want me to serve? Should I do more? Should I do something else? Two questions for you to ask yourself. And if you're not serving at all, you're not really doing anything here. You're just coming. That's great. Love having you. However, I want you to ask God this week, hey, God, I'm going to go. I'm going to have lunch after church next week. Can you please, God, show me some area of this church where I can serve, but not only where I can serve, but where you're calling me to serve, an area where I can benefit others, and an area, God, where, where frankly, I'll enjoy it. And what we're going to do after church next week is we're going to have every ministry leader that I just mentioned sitting at a table. They're going to have a list of volunteer needs that they have. I think some of them are awesome, frankly. Some of them are, are fun. Some of the things that I'm doing, I like doing. I just think you'll do them better. <laughs> some of the things that, that we have volunteer opportunities are in are not things you're like, oh, I guess if nobody else is going to do it. It's like, hey, that'd be kind of cool. I've always wanted to learn how to edit audio and this is an opportunity to do that but ask God not only to show you an area where you can be helpful but an area where you can be helpful and and feel really satisfied about doing the work that you're doing because when this is what I've seen this is what other people know to be true that have pastored a long time when people serve in an area that they feel good about then they serve much better and greater things happen Point number one, we need more ministry leaders. Point number two, my job is to, to invest in you so that you can do the work. And I'm really trying to do that more and more. And point number three, you gotta step up and do the work. And I think you're going to, so stick around next Sunday. Let me pray. Lord.
I know, God, I even prayed this while we were standing up on stage beforehand, that this is a really, it's a really corporate uh, sermon and, uh, frankly, maybe a very boring sermon, God. But I think it's a really important sermon. I think it's a very important passage of Scripture because, God, because I think that as a church, I mean, God, you, Lord, we've, we've almost died twice as an, as an organization, but you, by the power of, of your spirit and, and your grace and your love, and I think your plan for us, you've brought us back. And Lord, we have this incredible momentum right now, but it's momentum that will stall if people don't step up. I thank you for our, our, our just incredible ministry leaders who are, they are raising the bar. They've, they've elevated the ceiling of our, our congregation already. And I want that to go up and up and up because Lord, I wanna be part of a church. It's not even about pastoring a church like this. I wanna be part of a church that is making a real impact upon the world. And so I pray God that that you would raise up more and more leaders. I pray you'd raise up more and more elders and more and more ministry leaders. I pray, God, that we would be a church that is equipping people to grow in such a way, God, that that, that they can be filled with your Holy Spirit and, and have wisdom. And I pray, God, that every person who is a part of our church would find an area of ministry to serve our church in. And they would serve God passionately, but they'd also, God, by your grace, serve joyfully, and they would truly enjoy doing the things that you've called them to do. I've had that privilege many times in many roles, just feeling like, what would life be if I wasn't doing this? Like, it would just be less, and I pray that they'd find it too, Lord. I thank you that you organized the church in such a brilliant way. Where God really, um, while I might be the face of the church, I might be the voice of the church, I'm the least important part of moving this church forward. I thank you for that, God. Thank you that these people are your plan. I ask, God, that you would help me to invest in them. I pray, God, that we would keep moving forward as a church. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.